I'm Bryce Futch. And I'm Tony Melton. And this is The Way Forward. Welcome to this episode of The Way Forward. Uh, Today's topic is war. We're going to be talking about what a possible uh, future war with China would look like and what would bring it about and uh, what... uh, what would be the players involved and and how that has to do with their current actions. We're also going to kind of look at that uh, future possibility um, through the lens of the Russian-Ukraine uh, conflict right now. Not only because Russia is a friend to China, but also that it'll set a unique precedent for how China relates to Taiwan, the South China Sea. So that's kind of what we're going to be covering today. And uh, look forward to uh, some good conversation. Yeah, it's going to be good. Bryce, tell us how this situation with Russia and, and Ukraine is significant for how we as Americans think about our future relationship with China. What yeah. does that have to do with it? Sure. So uh, a couple things for context. First, I don't claim to be a, I don't claim to be any kind of expert on this. We've both just been reading a lot about how this works how China views things, it's something that we've been studying, and so that's where this conversation is coming from. So please take all that with a grain of salt, and in six weeks when all this turns out to be absolutely false, uh, please nobody hate us or sue us. or uh, (laughs) Yeah, so don't take it personally. Uh, But based off what we've been aggregating, this is kind of the context that we see and what makes sense. So Russia and Ukraine is is really important. At the time of this recording, Russia has has not invaded. Uh, They have continued to make some threats. Uh, They've continued to uh, amass troops on the border. NATO is responding by sending troops uh, to NATO countries along the border of Ukraine, but they're not sending any actual troops to Ukraine. Uh, the United States has basically said the same thing. We're, we're going to send troops to the surrounding area, but we're, we're not going to actually commit troops to, to Ukraine itself. We continue to send all different types of military aid from weapons to supplies, but we're, we're really not wanting to get in a shooting war with with Russia over Ukraine. And the reason why this is important is because China is going to be watching how we respond to Russia's involvement. Uh, If Russia attacks Ukraine and the United States fails to respond in a timely manner, China will see that as, I I think China will see that as a green light to start making moves on Taiwan, at least on some outlying islands uh, within Taiwan. Because, Because Taiwan and Ukraine Wrong. They're they're similar. In yeah, that we have similar relationships. We're friends with them, but they're not a part of NATO. Right. So yeah. So, so they're desirable by our two main uh, adversaries. Right. So Ukraine is not a member of NATO. Uh, Taiwan is not either. We have no formal re- military relationship with Ukraine. We do have some some agreements with Taiwan that we'll continue to supply them. With different supplies uh, and, well, and missile systems, right? We are, uh, but we don't have anything in, on paper anyway Got that it. says if you get attacked, we have to come to your defense. Got it. Uh, and which is why the the White House has been hedging pretty much everything they've said to say we are going to defend NATO, we're going to defend NATO countries, we're going to defend NATO allies. What gets tricky with this is NATO is, is historically has said anybody who wants to join can join, but Ukraine has wanted to join for a while now and. NATO keeps pushing them off, and it's because of the pressure that that Russia has been putting on uh, onto on NATO because Russia doesn't want a NATO country on their border. 
which is interesting and, and it kind of makes you question how far they're going to go within Ukraine, uh, because if they do take Ukraine, they would have NATO countries on their border. But it also raises a question, too, because Turkey is a member of NATO and Turkey is historically a bad actor. Uh, President Erdogan is is no friend of the United States, no friend of freedom. Uh, but yet we are covering him by our nuclear shield because he is a member of NATO. So. Uh, it, it begs a lot of questions. And then with Taiwan, while we are historically an ally of, of Taiwan, um, like we just said, there there is no paper contract. And so it, it really makes it makes it all much more muddy. Um, the United States has been doing military activities and exercises within the South China Sea for a long time, trying to check China's power there. But they just continue to, to spread. Yeah, speaking of muddy, the South China South China Sea is filled with <laughs> yes. mud right now because China has been doing some nefarious stuff there. Uh, yeah. How does that, how does, how does this uh, move into the South China Sea affect what's going on and kind of what's, how does that affect our relationship with China, situation in Taiwan? Sure. So China wants to extend their, their hold over the South China Sea for a number of reasons, one of which is trade. And the other is defense. And so they, they've they been building islands. So there's, there's five, I think there's five man-made islands now. They started building in 2014 that hold everything from anti-aircraft batteries to radar installations. And their goal is to expand, basically expand their coast by creating these man-made islands. Uh, Did you get the muddy joke? Yes, the muddy joke. Yeah, <laughs> I just want to make clear that <laughs> yes. that was a joke. Yeah. The, the, the muddy joke. It, it was good. I appreciate it. Uh, it is classic dad humor. Yes. Uh, yes, which I am coming to appreciate That's more right. and more. You'll, get, you'll, you'll learn. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, it's, uh, yeah, it, so they've been basically just dredging and then piling all this mud on top of these, uh, on top of these reefs to create these islands. So China's been doing this for a while. The United States has been trying to check their power there. Recently, there's, there's been the, the creation of a, of a group called the Quad. Uh, it's nicknamed the Quad, but it's it's four countries. It's India, Australia, Japan, and, and the United States. And their goal is it's while it's it is informal, it is a it exists to, to basically check China's power within the Indo-Pacific region. Uh, Australia has been under some influence attacks by China for a while. There was a an arrest made in just the last few years of a of a Chinese businessman who was one of the biggest lobbyists in the country uh, and had actually gotten several uh, members of parliament elected. And uh, he was turned out to be an agent, of, a registered agent of the, of the, of the Chinese government. Uh, there's India has seen China as a threat because India is the other hegemon in the, in the region. Uh, and both of which India and China are nuclear powers. And, India sees China as a rising threat. And so I would not be surprised if we did not see India making more of a defensive move on Taiwan's behalf uh, than the United States does, especially if the United States fumbles this Russia-Ukraine deal, right? So if I also think Japan would, would be willing to back up India as well, but Japan is also obviously threatened because China is right around the corner. So, so just to zoom out a little bit, I see some parallels here, you know, You've got you've got Russia and you've got China. Both of them are making moves to the borders of the areas that they would like to 
possess. Mm-hmm. Russia now has, what, 30,000 troops yeah. on the uh, border of Ukraine. Yes, in Belarus. And so, so that's a move out to their border, mm-hmm. on the border of where they'd like to go. And then China is building islands yes. that are near Taiwan yeah, so that they can be closer and expand right. and take over that area. And, okay, so that's one parallel. But then also you've got, in the Russia situation, you've got NATO. Mm-hmm. And we have more local allies that would be more poised to take a response if they so saw fit with Ukraine. Right. And we have the Quad. Yeah. That's kind of the parallel of NATO with the South China situation, mm-hmm. in which India, India and Japan. Yes. Like, I have an understanding of those. Yeah. That's interesting exactly that right. they're kind of parallel. They are. They're very a similar. A lot of situations. Okay. Cool. Yeah. And the interesting thing. If you look at the history of NATO and, and where it came from, so after the Second World War, the United States demilitarized, and the, a large number of European countries, in order to block, to to kind of check the Soviet bloc and to check their power, they they created NATO, so the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and NATO existed because the United States had nuclear weapons, nuclear weapons, and China, or I'm sorry, and Russia did not, but Russia had these this million man army that could you know wipe wipe out Europe if it wanted to. And so the United States basically had, they created this nu- this nuclear shield around NATO. And there hasn't been a huge shift in policy on how we use nuclear weapons uh, since then. There, now there's been some change from massive retaliation to a proportional response and things like that. But at the end of it, it what it comes out, what it comes down to is you, you have some kind of, of nuclear attack. And that's the concerning part about any kind of shooting war. So if, if the United States doesn't respond swiftly, I think there's kind of three responses responses we could see in Ukraine. One is, uh, is, is nothing. They don't do anything. They let Ukraine fight it out. They have a swift response or they have a slow and, and long response. Yeah, a swift response would be some kind of airstrikes to support Ukrainian ground, ground troops, um, releasing those troops from from NATO to go, or maybe even bring in some kind of UN peacekeepers. But UN peacekeepers have a horrible record of doing anything constructive when it comes to actually protecting people on the ground uh, using weapons. Uh, but having some kind of immediate response to check Russia's, Russia's aggression immediately after they try and cross the border, I think that would be a wake-up call to Putin to say, hey, we're, we're serious about this. We're not going to let this move forward. And I, and I think he would seriously consider stopping and, and, go, and potentially going back. The long drag out response would be some kind of, of NATO backed airstrikes to support Ukraine over a, a drawn out occupation. Uh, and and China is going to be looking at which of those three we pick. And then I think they'll be saying this will be a very similar re- response and reaction to any kind of invasion of Taiwan, even if it's just an outlying island or two. So we see Russia encroach upon Ukraine. We have, of course, I know there's three options. Sure. Just to say two options. We do nothing or we do something. Yeah. To do something would would obviously create a good buffer between mm-hmm. Russia and NATO countries. Yes. It would also limit Russia's power mm-hmm. as a superpower that's not super friendly towards us. Right. There's that advantage. Um it would it would upset Putin, which I think mm-hmm. is an advantage in itself since he's sure. turd. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's not technically our fight. Yeah. And on the, on the, that's a negative. We'd be getting involved. It would cost us money. Mm-hmm. And it would get us into uh, a, a fight with Russia. Yeah. Officially. 
So what, what do you think is the, the right move there? I, th- I think it's a, it's, a, it's a strong support of Ukrainian background troops by airstrikes or missile strikes. Do you think we should something do something? Like yes. Yeah, so but do. not, and do something quick and, yeah. and, and um, emblematic. Yeah. Right. Symbolic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like, show of force. Yes. So, and even if the show of force, like, I, I think the show of force needs to be meaningful. Right. So if we look at the way we've done things like this in the past, so. Uh, Syria is a great example. Under President Obama, he said there was this red line that we weren't going to that we weren't going to let Syria cross if you use chemical weapons. Syria used chemical weapons. We didn't do anything about it. President Trump comes into office and says, "Here's a red line that we're not we're not going to let Syria cross if they use chemical weapons again. We're going to do something about it." Syria really used well. yeah, Syria <laughs> Syria used them again, and so we we had uh, we used cruise missiles and, and we and we struck a number of Syrian bases. However, we basically told the Syrians beforehand, "Hey, these are the bases we're going to strike." Syria moved their people out of off those bases. We destroyed the infrastructure, but we didn't actually take, we didn't kill Syrian militants, uh, which I don't know that I necessarily agree with that, but I understand why they did it. And I think in a response to Russia, we don't have that option, right? Like we can't say, hey, we're going to strike, you know, these three military targets. Like it has to be meaningful. We have to actually kill Russian troops, which it, anytime you say anything like that, it, it's incredibly dangerous. And I don't say it lightly at all. Because it can easily, you made the comment earlier, it can easily go from a, a mortar to a cruise missile to a, a nuclear attack uh, in a heartbeat. And, but n- nuclear weapons are so horrific that I really do believe that the people who have their finger on those triggers understand that. And they don't want to go there. But political pressure, things like that. The problem with with it is is the idea of using a tactical nuclear weapon, which is much smaller and can be used on a battlefield. Uh, I think that's where the temptation is going to be to use these low low yield nuclear weapons uh, to try and turn to turn the tide on on the Russian side if the United States gets involved. Right. So I, we just kind of laid out some pros and cons for engage or not, but there's actually another benefit to engaging Ukraine. And that is that we're not just dealing with a single superpower here. Right. We're dealing with two two superpowers. Right. Russia and China. Yes. And the show, the, the decision to show force or not in Ukraine right. is highly linked with future Chinese action right. towards Taiwan. It is. And so it's just the question is, is this the time to, to play strong mm-hmm. in uh, our relationships with the two superpowers or not. Yeah. And I think is, is, from what I hear you saying, those two responses need to be very linked. Yes, I think they do. Not only do they have a tremendous amount of parallel, mm-hmm. but our role in the, that situation is, is uh, should probably be linked to the same. Yes, uh, I would totally agree. I think, I think the thing that ties us to Ukraine is our view on human rights, our view on international aggression, uh, and it, I mean, we have a little bit of trade with Ukraine, but, but we would not be in a position to lose economically if Ukraine went 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 to Russia. We're, we're not like just brass tacks of it. There's very little. There's very little tangible things that we would lose or be affected by if that happened. Now, the way the United States stands on human rights, the way the United States stands on international aggression, we are 100 percent opposed to it. And it makes sense for us to be opposed to it. Uh, the the difference with that in Taiwan is we would lose a lot if if Taiwan was to fall. Uh, Taiwan is I think produces close to eighty percent of the computer chips that we put in our cars. 
Uh, China produces the vast majority of the rest of them, which is one of the reasons why there's this short. Uh, we we have a, a very heavy trade presence with Taiwan, and we mm. would be hurting very very heavily economically if if Taiwan was to fall or if their trade was just to be interrupted. Historically, China has not been a military threat. China, is, and I don't think that they want to be a military threat term. I think they want to be an economic threat. If we look at the way they're developing their country, if we look at the way they're using the Belt and Road Initiative, they want to be able to pull the purse strings of every country around the world. And that's one of the reasons why they're buying up so much of the United States debt. They, they don't want to put a, plant a, a, Rush, a, a Chinese flag in Washington, D.C., they just want to be able to put enough economic pressure on us to do whatever they need to like do. Like restrict the production of trucks. Right. Exactly. So every, got, I mean, yeah, because everybody in the South is a pickup truck and a gun, and right. China wants we to must, control the production of all. We must act. Yes. Else we won't have any more. And I have, I have shot a <laughs> Chinese-made uh, SKS, and it is a horrible <laughs> shooting weapon. <laughs> it is really bad. Uh, but China has... So we, we talked earlier about... Uh, we talked about the quad... In a previous episode, we also talked about uh, intellectual property and cybersecurity, and that's a big part of of, of how China wants to right. move forward, right? So China is spending less on their national defense than we are because they're stealing things from us. So if you look at China's new fighter, it's basically a copy of the F-35, which, which we just spent billions of dollars developing. We just lost one, actually, in the South China Sea. Uh, it crashed on an aircraft carrier, and it, it came in for a hard landing, bounced off, and, and landed in the water. Uh, the pilot ejected and was fine, but now it's it's a race between the Navy and the Chinese to to pull this this plane up off the floor because China wants to get in there and steal the rest of that technology that's on that plane. So we we talk about uh, another weapon that, that China cre- that China stole uh, was this anti ship missile. So we spent these billions of dollars to create this new ship that is hard to track, hard to see all of these types of stuff. And they spent a quarter of it by stealing missile technology from us to then develop this missile that can take out these ships. So it's a, we're, we're in this price war with them basically. So we're in a, it's, it's like what we did in the cold war when we outspent Russia, but China is instead of outspending us, they're like, yeah, they're out stealing and out saving. So like, they spend way less than we do to to create weapons that are almost as good. Uh, now, I have no illusions about it. If it was a totally conventional warfare, the United States still has the strongest military in the world, largest military, in the world, best equipped military in the world, and it would it would be no contest. But it's not. That's that, that's where nuclear weapons come into play, and that nuclear deterrent really makes a big difference. Which is one of the reasons why China is focusing so hard on that economic power. I think one of the things for us to to keep in mind too long-term with the Belt and Road Initiative is China is creating these military alliances. Well, they're creating alliances that can be used for military capacity down the road. So a few years ago, an article came out about how China and North Korea were training troops in different countries in on the continent of Africa. And they're, they're, they're doing this training for them. And, but in doing so, they're also stationing troops there, right? So um, there's a, there's a number of, of Chinese troops that are now stationed around the Horn of Africa because they have a port there. Uh, I think the chances for proxy wars are going to go up uh, because it's it's basically a reverse Vietnam, right? So China is the one sending advisors to these countries uh, that we would that countries that we have uh, treaties with would be opposed to would be opposed to their aggression. 
so I, I think there's a I think because of that Belt and Road Initiative, there's a, there's a higher chance for proxy wars. But I don't think that all out war with China is anywhere on the on the spectrum in the next fifty years. And I think it's going to be yeah. it's going to be economic. It's going to be cyber based proxy. Exactly. Okay, so that's really good because I think you know coming from this from I, I wasn't really informed about this until we started this season. I would have just thought of risk of war as what are their troops? But to hear that war is a little more complex, yeah. at least puts um, risk in a different, uh, you look at it a different way. All right. So here's a question for you. We, we were talking about mud. Mm-hmm. Now let's talk about stones. Sure. Do you think that our government has the stones <laughs> to do what is necessary? Uh, uh, if, if, if this is a time to, uh, to show symbolic force, uh, to, to check, these mm-hmm. two superpowers, um, given that they're going to continue to expand, not just in terms of boots on the ground, yeah. but also cyber warfare, proxy wars, you know, all the things you just named. Um, given our recent track record, yeah. the current administration, and even the past few, yeah, what do you think about our stuff? I don't know. I think the I think I think it's a it's a very delicate balance, right? Stones are delicate. Yes, I think. Uh, I think President Biden is very politically weak right now. And I think if, if his administration made up their mind to do it and they were able to execute, I think it would be a game changer for them. I really do. Uh, but I don't think they're, I don't, it seems like so far they, they don't have the ability to organize their way out of a wet paper bag. Uh, but if they did and they could pull it off, then. So you see this as a big opportunity for them. Yes. But. Chances of success are pretty low. Yeah, I would almost. uh, My concern would be that it would be something similar to when President Carter tried to rescue the Iran hostages, and they lost like I think it was four or five helicopters in the desert. It was a total, just a a total failure. Uh, I I don't see it. I don't. I don't. I just don't see it working. Uh, I want it to work because I think it's best for us. I think it's best for Ukraine. Uh, But I don't think they have political will to to make it. It's encouraging. It's not. So. This is for the uh, the common man, right? Mm-hmm. Not the uh, heads of state. This podcast, yeah. So, uh, what are things that uh, we should take away from this? Uh, what are things we can do? Um, how, how would how does the common man relate to this topic, which is uh, over over the Atlantic and South China Sea? And uh, what are some things to be watching for as we as we go through the next several weeks? Yeah, uh, great question. So, I think. It's a, it's a number of things. I think one, if you have the opportunity and can reach out to your congressman, your state rep, anybody that will listen to you, encourage American involvement in these things. Uh, we, we have a stake. The question is, it, it goes back to the kind of the premise that, that we started with, with, with China, right? Like the United States is a great two to four year, ten, maybe 10 year strategic thinker. Like we do that really well. China is playing this. 50-year, 100-year long game, and we do that very poorly. And so we're, we're looking at, we, you talked about this administration, and if we, could, if we could do it, they're looking at the midterms, right? They're looking at the time between now and November right. and saying, what can we do to, to save our skin? And if they see this as a political benefit, then they may do it. Uh, but after the, the, the poor pullout in Afghanistan, I think that the Biden administration is going to say, absolutely not. We're not getting into this again. 
we're we're, we're going to stay out. So I think anytime you can you can encourage people to to reach out to their state rep, reach out to their is your state rep can it has a platform as well. Yes, it's not as directly connected as a, as a member of Congress, but it is it is it is related. Uh, speak out about it. You know, uh, I I don't think we should be we should limit our action to social media. I think that's a really bad way to to live our life. I think uh, Americans have a in particular have a poor view of activism because they they like something or they share a link or they share a post and they think okay I did something when in reality the effect that that has on people is pretty low it's a part of the equation but if that's all you're doing it's not enough right, right? so but all that to say don't not post on Facebook about it don't not share information about it um, make sure that you're sharing it from a credible source you know find find a, a respectable news agency and, and share what they're what they're saying because a lot of people don't know a lot of people aren't keeping track of it. Right. They're not paying attention to it. Uh, and I, never, can, I never made this connection of what you just said, that we're not great at playing the long game, in part because we have short um, election cycles. Election cycles. Mm-hmm. The, and and uh, so it almost, well, it's honestly, you know, it's a, a chicken and egg type of thing. We, we don't even have a populace that thinks yeah. long term because our, popu- our politicians don't think long term. Right. So, I mean, the, really the solution, it sounds to me, is once the once the populace is aware of these issues, mm-hmm. can develop their own convictions about a long term strategy about these yeah. things, and believes in the value of having a consistent presence mm-hmm. in other parts of the world, well, then our politicians won't be so fixated on right. the here and now, the two year cycles. Yeah, that they'll they'll know that we're behind them mm-hmm. to do hard things, even right. when they're not immediately advantageous to yeah. them politically, because they have a wise. Uh, they represent a wise people, right? And I think so. That this is this is a. I mean, we could do a whole other season on on this, but it's a. This issue stems from a democratization a democratization of a democratic republic, right? So we were a democratic republic. Talked about this before. Uh, we're supposed to elect our electors, and we have said we have we have made the president this pseudo demigod like they can they can wield their political will and they right. can they can cure cancer or they can do whatever or they can send somebody to the moon but that's not the way the constitution was meant to function right we're we were meant to function with a weak executive not a strong executive and the senate was supposed to be this moderating force because it was supposed to have equal representation amongst the states and we've totally shot that all to pieces the the Congress was supposed to be the voice of the people, and we've done a good job of keeping that in check. But like it, it was a similar problem in Afghanistan, right? Like we went back and forth on every election cycle of whether we wanted to be there or not. And if you don't have any kind of, of consistent voice of saying yes, we are committed, we didn't declare war. Why did we not declare war in, in Afghanistan, right? We, so because we didn't, Congress was not tied to this decision. And it was a, a year-to-year case of, well, do, are we winning? Are we losing? Do we care if we're winning or losing this year? And we we lost it. We should have said, welcome to the United States of America territory of Afghanistan, right? Like, it, it, it takes generations to change minds from a tribal mindset and a nomadic mindset to one that understands Western philosophy of why democracy is important and why republics matter. Like we we take we we look at the American experiment, but we forget that it was in the context of this strong Judeo-Christian worldview paired with the Enlightenment, 
in literally hundreds of years of human history, potentially thousands of years of human history, going all the way back to Plato and Aristotle, of here's how society should function. And we finally got it right. And now we think we can export it to another country in a matter of year, in a matter of 20 years. And it just doesn't work that way. Right? You know, if we look at where the United States has fought wars in the past, we like to say that the only land we ask for is enough to bury our dead, which sounds great and very patriotic and very noble. But it's just not true, right? Like the reason we've continued to have peace in Europe is because we left troops stationed all throughout Europe under the guise of NATO. The reason we've had peace in on the Korean Peninsula is because we've left thousands of troops stationed in South Korea since the end of the Korean conflict. Same in Japan. Like it's a we 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 don't do a good job of rightly representing how we do foreign policy militarily as conservatives and as Republicans, because we like to, we like to have this idea of we're not conquerors and we're, and we're not, yeah, we're not, we're, we're not colonists, right? We're, we're not colonizing. We're not, right. We're not doing any of that, but we are saying, Hey, I'm just saying like, we're so nervous of the, right. of the accusation that we're not honest about how, how change actually does take place. Right. When you're trying to change yeah. the culture of a, of a politic. And a great example of this is India, right? So mm-hmm. India was a, a colony of Britain. They, they pretty much all speak English because of that heritage. They have a, a functioning democracy because of the education that, that England brought to bear. Uh, there's a, a famous story. I don't know if we've told it in this podcast or not, but this, this British, uh, uh, there, so there was a, there was a, uh, I believe it's a Hindu custom where the, the, uh, widow is burned on the same funeral, burned alive on the same funeral pyre as her former husband, who's who's dead. So they they burn that they cremate the husband. A romance. Yes, and that's a, yeah, that's a great, it's insane. And so there was a, a British uh, commander of some kind that, that came yeah. up on this on this ritual getting ready to happen, and he really? and he was going to stop it. Yeah. And this Indian said, "You don't understand. In our country, this is normal." And he said, "Well, you don't understand. In my country, we hang people." Who, yeah, who burn, right. who burn yeah. them alive? There you go. And and they stop that. They stop that custom from happening. Now it still happens right. every once in a while, and it's and it's, but it, it's not the cultural norm. It's wow. not widely accepted throughout the country. Yeah. So there is a there is a, a like, and, and people would say, well, if you're a if you're a moral relativist, you can say, well, if your society think this is fine, you can do it. But but it's I don't know how anybody can good conscience can say. If your society thinks that burning a woman alive right. is is moral and just, right. that it is because it's not yeah. right. Uh, but so we that we was kind of no brain. Yeah, and, and we so we we take this this idea of of very being very hands off, being very laissez faire with our international relations, and it it just doesn't work. It doesn't work because access is influence. This is really what it comes down to. I'm really glad we talked. We we ended this conversation this way because I think that. You know, you can assess the situation in Russia. You can just you can assess the situation in China purely on strategic grounds. But in the back of your mind, you know, I don't know if this is uh, aging me, but you're always going to have the uh, what is it, South Park, the the World Police <laughs> yes. you know, thing. Like that, everyone. I feel like everyone is 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 still kind of reacting against yeah. this uh, this uh, fear of being too involved. Yeah. And really, I think what I'm hearing you say is that we, we as Americans should really own this role. Yes. But Even, by God's grace, we are yeah. still a nation that, that uh, especially relative to other sure. superpowers, does represent justice yeah. and human rights mm-hmm. and can insist upon a sane form of government. Yeah. 
um, one that uh, aligns more closely with divine law and nature than communism. Yes. Right. And so uh, should be a little bit more aggressive, even when it doesn't serve our immediate self-interest. Right. Because long game, there's a bigger battle that's going. Right. And I think the interesting kind of uh, juxtaposition between Republicans and Democrats is, and I don't remember who said it, somebody else did, it's not original to me, but Republicans want a big army and they don't want to send it anywhere. And Democrats want a small army and they want to send it all over the place. Hmm. And I think there's a middle ground between the two. Because it is in our, it, it's both in our best interest and it is in the interest of human rights and human flourishing to intervene. Yeah. It's Samantha Power, whether you, you like her or hate her, uh, she was UN ambassador under President Obama. She wrote this book called The Problem from Hell, and, it, and it's incredible. It traces the, the history of the UN uh, interventions in these human rights cases. Uh, and it's, it's horrific. Uh, and it's a, it's a horrible failure. And it goes to show that you can't rely on large multinational bodies to act appropriately. Uh, at some time, somebody has to say, I'm going to own this. We're going we're gonna to fix this. Right. Uh, or we're, we're going to do everything we can to intervene from a objectively moral position. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been a good treatment of that question. That was a, this was a longer episode. But yeah. If you hung with us, uh, kudos. And I hope you were, hope you were uh, blessed by that. This was good. I learned a lot here, too. I'm Bryce Fletch. And I'm Tony Melton. And you've been listening to The Way Forward.